Hello, enthusiasts, and welcome back to Wine in the Bottle, the podcast for wine nerds of all levels. I'm your Wine and Spirits Education Trust Level 3 Certified Host, Sarah, and today's topic is Napa Valley Cult Cabernet. You've heard the names. Opus One, Screaming Eagle, Ghost Horse, Colgan, Harlan, Bond, Melka? Or maybe you haven't. These names, plus a few others, are considered cult-like gods of the Napa Cabernet game. With exclusive mailing lists, high prices, and whispered reverence through the wine community. Like the rest of Napa's 400-plus wineries, these producers strove to make the perfect Cabernet Sauvignon. But somehow, these few were the ones ending up on the pedestal, earning consistent 100-point reviews and successfully retailing their wines for hundreds of dollars per bottle. For example, Screaming Eagle's flagship Cabernet will set you back upwards of four grand for a single bottle, and only if you can get your hands on one at a private auction. Don't even think about visiting the wineries. Opus One is, surprisingly, open to the public, unlike many of the others, but two splashes of wine plus access to the property costs you $100 per person, and the full Opus experience, a tour, a flight of four wines, and pretty good canapes, is $200 per person. Anywhere else, you'd be walking away with two full bottles of wine for those prices. Many of the other cult classic producers are closed to the public completely, available to visit by invitation only. To get in, you already have to have an in. So what makes these blessed few different? Well, to find out, we first need to go back to the beginning. Or, in this case, the second beginning. While quality wine was coming out of the Napa Valley as far back as the 1880s, this cult Cabernet phenomenon didn't pick up until the 1980s, when Napa was just starting to hit its stride as a premier wine region. You may have heard of the 1976 Judgment of Paris, an event that pitted classic French wine against New World Napa Valley wine. Stag's Leap Wine Cellar's Cabernet Sauvignon came in first by 0.05 points, eking past Chateau Mouton Rothschild from Bordeaux, a well-established quality Bordeaux name that you probably even recognize. Other Napa producers like Heights and Freemark Abbey, plus Ridge, a producer from Cupertino about 90 miles south of Napa, outranked more well-known contemporary French wine. That event revolutionized Napa, a rebirth of sorts, and drew the world's gaze to this small secluded valley just north of San Francisco. The cult craze is less about legacy and more about quality, and perhaps mostly about marketing. For example, Chateau Montalena, established in 1882, was the oldest winery to place in the Judgment of Paris event. Their Chardonnay ranked first in the competition for white wines, but somehow Chardonnay didn't catch on quite like Cabernet. And Montalena's wines are still quite reasonably priced, most commanding less than $100 per bottle, save for the odd library cab. 
but they've never marketed themselves as ultra premium. And that's the difference. They're just proud of their product and legacy. The cult producers, all younger producers, some established nearly 100 years after Chateau Montalena, took advantage of the global phenomenon that Napa was becoming and earned their status with a combination of quality and exclusivity. Collectors, after all, love having something that you can only get if you know how to get it. And so it was all in the marketing. The main catalyst was word of mouth. Basically, get the right information in the hands of the right people and you're set. High roller wine collectors tend to follow in the same circles. So if you get your product in with one, they're bound to tell their friends and boom, established client base. 1981 saw the beginning of Auction Napa Valley, a yearly event for vintners and collectors that comes with a steep entry price, starting at $100 per ticket and going up from there, not including bidding on the auction lots. At the auction, bidders have the opportunity to vie for rare wines, vertical collections, exclusive experiences, and even lots right out of the barrel. The proceeds from this event get infused back into the community, with over $200 million going to local nonprofits since its inception. Auction Napa Valley was a fantastic avenue for luxury producers to distribute their wines to discerning deep pockets. And so the cult fire was lit by limiting the number of cases produced, ensuring that only the best grapes are used for their wines, and darn well making sure that that wine is good enough to keep people coming back for more and telling their friends. And it worked. Many wineries have come and gone in the last 30 years. After all, winemaking is a tough and competitive business. But these cult names have remained and will endure, all thanks to word-of-mouth marketing. So I came across a couple of cult classics on my favorite wine auction website, and I splurged a little, but I wanted to see what all the fuss is about. So I have two wines for us to try today. One is from Schaefer Vineyards, and the other one is from Bryant Family Vineyards. So let's jump right in. First up. Bryant Family Vineyards 2006 DB4 Red Blend. Their winemaker is Philippe Melka. Mostly Cabernet Sauvignon, likely with a smattering of Merlot or Petit Verdot. I couldn't find the exact percentages, but it does say Cabernet Sauvignon on the label, so we can assume it is at least 75% Cabernet Sauvignon. This particular wine got an average score, critically, of 93 points. The 2006 vintage in Napa was a rather unremarkable vintage. Nothing particularly out of the ordinary happened, save for some unwelcome damp and dewy mornings in the month before harvest season. So 93 points is pretty good for an unremarkable vintage. This bottle currently retails for about $149. I paid $105. Later vintages, though, average about $170 per bottle, and I found one that was almost $300. Bryant Family is so exclusive 
that on their website, they have an authentication page where you can type in your bottle number to verify and avoid any fraudulent activity. Yes, Colt Cabernet is often duplicated in a fraudulent manner, believe it or not. I'm really excited to try this wine. I love my red wine old as dirt, and this is 2006, so that's 16 years. And you can already tell uh, it right out of the bottle is a gorgeous garnet color. Just starting to turn garnet also, but it's very pale and it smells delicious, obviously. You get that black currant and cassis that you want to get out of a Napa Cabernet, but also pomegranate and red cherry, a little bit of wet leaves and leather, and just a hint of, I don't know how else to describe it other than kerosene. And I didn't decant this, I just Coravined it straight out of the bottle into my glass. Black plum, blueberry, blackberry. It's dark and vibrant, juicy. And all of those flavors are on the palate. Wow. Wow, this wine is concentrated and delicious. You get a little bit of stewed plum, prune, blackberry jam, more tertiary on the palate but it's still very vibrant and fruit forward. 16 years in, this thing's still holding up. The tannins, medium tannins, they're soft, but they're present and it has high acidity. I think this thing could go for another 10 years, to be honest. This is an amazing wine. No wonder it costs so much. It's a dry wine. It's not sweet, but due to the bottle age and those tertiary stewed fruit flavors, you get kind of a perception of sweetness. This would be one of those Cabernets that people try to pair with chocolate. I would not do that. Have this with braised ribs and thick Texas barbecue sauce with just a hint of spice in it. This is an amazing wine. I can't say it more, I guess. Next up is the Schaefer Vineyards 2017 TD9 Red Blend. And after tasting that amazing 2006, I don't really know what to expect. I'm a little scared. But to be fair, this next wine is different. Very different. I couldn't afford their 100% Cabernet from Schaefer Vineyards. It's $300 per bottle current release. So I had to pivot and... The TD9 is 62% Merlot, 22% Malbec, and 16% Cab Sauve, and it only cost me $55. Now, 2017 was a terrible vintage, a wet and wild spring and a hot, dry, windy summer that ended with the devastating wildfires that we've discussed on this podcast before. So... I'm not sure what to expect in comparison. Schaefer Vineyards was one of those wineries that debuted their product at the first auction Napa Valley in 1981. So they're one of the original cult producers, very much like Bryant Family Estate. They have history in the valley. They're known for their quality. 
And even this 2017 red blend averages about 90 points critically. So that's not too bad for the circumstances. Let's see what happens when we open the bottle. Right off the bat, you can see in the wine, it's a little bit darker. I would say medium, and it is ruby, although it is starting to borderline garnet. This wine is 11 years younger than the 2006. So we'll give it a swirl. Whoa, so much vanilla. Totally different, totally different. I get strawberry rhubarb, vanilla, a little bit of a dill character. I'm wondering if this was aged in American oak. Cranberry, raspberry, very red fruit forward, and just a hint of tobacco and earth. So there's a hint of tertiary. I do get some sort of stewed fruit. I would expect that from the 2017. I'm expecting lower acidity and less longevity. This 2017 might be at the same stage as the 2006. Tannins are grippier, much more present. I can definitely taste the oak presence as well. There's some cedar in addition to just more vanilla. I'm not knocking the vanilla. I think when used in moderation, the vanilla quality that oak imparts can be really desirable. Like I mentioned that this smells like strawberry rhubarb and vanilla. It's almost pie-like, just without the pie crust. So it's almost pie-filling-like. So the structure is definitely coming from the Cabernet Sauvignon. It has maybe a medium plus body and definitely high tannins. There's a smoky, savory quality that is probably coming from the Malbec. And the Malbec is also providing those juicy red fruits. And in my opinion, anytime Merlot is aged in oak, you get vanilla. So I think that's really where that's coming from is from the Merlot character. But I should also be getting some like blueberry, blackberry, which I'm, I'm not particularly getting. Overall, it's a good quality wine. Nothing to write home about like the DB4, but it's still pretty good. Can it continue to age? Yeah, absolutely. I would drink it now. It won't go bad. Will it get any better? Probably not. But that's the 2017 for you. They really did very well with the circumstances they had for that 2017 vintage. I would totally drink this wine. Here's the difference between the two wines. The 2006 is so overwhelmingly vibrant still that it knocks you off your feet. TD9 is a thinking wine. It really makes you contemplate what's in your glass. It's good and would go well with pretty much anything. This one I could see more with like a black pepper crusted tri-tip or sirloin steak rather than the more tender ribs that I mentioned with the other one. I think it is a testament to how amazing Schaefer is as a producer because what they do in even the most dire of circumstances is quality work. Oh gosh, now I'm gonna have to go buy one of those $300 bottles of Cabernet, aren't I? And there you have it, enthusiasts. A taste of fine wines and cult classics. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Wine and the Bottle. Don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to hear more stories about the vast world of wine. And drop a comment to keep the conversation going. Until next time, cheers!